three, two, one. Anthony Darby. Chuck Hen. We have special guest Mike Cardoza. Mike, welcome. Thank you very much. Appreciate you having me. So, uh, <clears throat> as a quick preface, if you don't know who Mike is, he's about to tell you. But our very first guest was actually Manny. And awesome. um, that was really cool for me to uh, to understand that you helped him get his start in the industry. Uh, something that I didn't realize. I mentioned you, and and he started speaking so fondly of you, and he actually got a, a really good, you know, favorable shout out on our first episode. That's nice, so it's man. Really He's cool. a great guy. It's such a small network in the cannabis industry, and like. Um, people get to progress so fast. So, you know, you may have only known him for a few years, but like you literally like helped change his life. And it's really neat as we have this profound effect on folks and the cannabis industry really does the heavy lifting of that. Um, it's, it's, it's awesome. So um, thank you so much for taking some time and coming on. Um, give people a real quick bio and then I'll dive into how you and I first met as kind of early pioneers in the Maryland industry. Sure. Thank you again for having me down. Um, my name is Mike Cardozo. I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, in Montgomery County. Um, attended the University of Miami down in Florida, and uh, ended up co-founding Chesapeake Alternatives, which applied for processing and dispensary licenses here in Maryland. Um, I got in the industry really because I had a strong medical interest. Uh, since I was in high school, I had been volunteering as an EMT and firefighter, and always loved medicine and the patient care aspect, the patient assessment. Uh, and those types of interactions. And I thought this would be a really exciting industry to get into, thought it could really help with the opioid epidemic. And uh, so I took the risk and applied for licensing here in Maryland. I decided not to apply for growing initially. That felt a little bit outside of my purview, but uh, we were fortunate enough to receive processing and dispensary licenses. And uh, Chesapeake was one of the first processors and dispensaries to open and uh, produces a number of brands. And uh, since then, I've had the opportunity to get involved in a couple other ventures, start some consulting. And um, yeah, that's, that's the gist. So any of, um, of our patients that are familiar with Rhythm and Mary's and all of that, uh, Mike was intricate in getting those brands established in Maryland and off the ground. Um, uh, Mike was the second or third, maybe the third. I think Shore Natural, we made a purchase from, we made a purchase from Curio, Curio and then Chesapeake was the third. Um, so let's let's unpack that real quick. So you mentioned you got in the industry. Were you, did you write a lot of your application? Did you guys? Yes. So my partner and I wrote a significant portion of the content ourselves. We did utilize some help from a consulting firm out of Seattle, Calix King Consulting, on some of the IP, some of the SOPs, but uh, we did quite a bit our, ourselves. We, uh, my partner was working at a law firm at the time, and we would go to her office downtown in D.C. after hours and stay till midnight, one in the morning, and, and work on things. And uh, it was a stressful but great, great learning experience doing that ourselves. Yeah, you guys also took an interesting route in just applying for processing and dispensaries. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we see either all three or a lot of the grow process connection. So um, did you have any fears of not having that growing piece when you were going in the market, or did you feel pretty confident there would be good supply there? We felt confident that there would be enough supply. We Evaluating whether or not to apply for the grow w was interesting. We, we really were drawn to the... Um, uh, fact that we would have control over our supply chain if we had it. You know, you can't replace that, the ability to control the product from seed to sale. 
but we weren't comfortable with the risk capital required, the margins, and the technical side. We felt that with our backgrounds and our advisory board's backgrounds that processing uh, was just a greater value add opportunity, a bit safer, easier to control. And to me, and my interest on the medical side felt like the future that I really wanted to take the, the company in. And we knew that we could bring in uh, growing in the end, which we did. But of course, you know, that always comes at a cost. And we, you know, paid for that, especially early in the market when we wanted to make sure that we had enough supply to extract. Yeah, you guys were paying top dollars for flour. I mean, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so it, the market is so much different than what it was when we first opened up. And it, sometimes it's easy for me to forget, probably because it was so painful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like literally my relationship with Mike was I met him through some networking events. Um, I feel like we kind of really hit it off of a very – we felt like we both had a very patient, focused strategy. We had a shared interest in uh, making a big impact in the opioid epidemic using cannabis. But we're both in business, and I am coming from a dispensary owner standpoint where I'm approved, I'm open, I'm able to distribute cannabis, but I can't find any to distribute. And I'm literally hounding forward grow Forward grow, forward grow, because they're supposed to be the ones that got the earliest start, and they're going to be the ones. This went off for like three or four months, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, it really yeah. did. I mean, we were approved in August. Yeah. Matter of fact, I got. Um, so we first got our certificate of oc- We first got our what? It was a CO come, and I celebrated. Yeah. And yeah, I sh- you celebrated. It was like the fire marshal inspection. Yeah, I celebrated the wrong inspection. That's a big, that's but a big then day. Pretty quickly after we got our CO, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure we had our CO by September 1st, and we were a basically approved and ready to go. And we but, waited for the inspection. I think we finally got our license October 23rd mm-hmm. or something. So all the expenses to get open, mm-hmm. now monthly expenses coming in. We told our story. We had no money. So like we had to get open. We had to have product. I remember finding out that Forward Grow sold all their product to processors and literally just like, <laughs> I, like I can't... <laughs> The I amount think he of F me. words <laughs> that I said to Gary Magnum. I don't yeah. even care. I hope he hears this because we're cool now. But at that time, I was not a happy camper. And I didn't know now alone. what I knew then. Or mm-hmm. I know now what I didn't know then and understand why things were good to processors and things like that. Um, but then like, the kind of ball was in your corner, right? I mean, yeah. you guys took a, a big chunk of what Forward Grow had. Yeah. We... You know, the it really started early on with our, our strategy um, with being really first movers. We When we got the processing license, you know, we, we weren't assigned a county yet. Of course, that ultimately was Queen Anne's. We didn't have, we didn't apply with real estate lockdown. And so, you know, we had one year from that day when we got that email for the pre-approval to execute. And I think my partner and I, we just... That was our ultimate fear, was screwing this up because we were late. And so over time, that strategy evolved into bringing in a strategic partnership so that we could have brands ready to go, our retail uh, branding and design ready, product formulations, things like that. So, and we did end up being, uh, I think, us and Curio, the first two. Uh, and that was a great advantage, but also came, you know, was a very steep learning curve for us early in the market. We course the first thing that always happens is the pricing and whenever you have a brand new medical market it's it's always a pretty interesting curve and the dilemma for the first 
for a processor like ourselves that were independent and not operating our own cultivation was, you know, here we are ready to produce products, but we only have, you know, one option from a grower to buy from. We can't really do anything about that price, yet that price is going to dictate how, how, how it moves down, you know, from our pricing to the retailers. And of course, you know, an example between you and I, I really value relationships and I had been building them for quite a while. And when the market opened, uh, you know, there were a lot of people anxious to get product. So what we tried to do was balance being early to market with being responsible suppliers. So we stockpiled for a bit till we were sure that we weren't going to run out immediately and, you know, tried to offer, you know, offer supply in a fair way, distribute it fairly as quickly as possible and efficiently, and then scale up as rapidly as we could. But it was tricky. Yeah, um, I mean, it was like, and for us, I know that was a big fear that Darby and I both had on the retail side of things. It's like, okay, well, we have these products this week. What are we going to have next week? Right. And I remember there being, you know, times where there was a lull. Somebody would come to market, you know, once, and they'd have some flowers, maybe and some processed products, and then a month goes by, and they have yep. nothing to offer. Yep. So that was the, it was appreciated for you guys doing stuff like that to keep that constant supply. Cause, I, I mean, thought you guys did us, a, a an thing. amazing job of being mindful that this is a patient market um, in terms of the fairness that, you know, I just, I always felt like when, if patients ever had issues or anything, like you guys always did a great job of it. And, and to your point, um, you guys didn't run out and you guys were able to give us a pretty consistent product time after time. And when patients asked for stuff, I knew that there was things that got prioritized to get that their way. So, um, I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, now that we understand some of the challenges that you guys had, I mean, I was I had um, Cam from Short Natural on here, and we were joking with them in terms of like the market was so brutal to the growers and to the vendors because the patients are screaming, "Give us products yesterday! Give us products yesterday! Give us products yesterday!" This is a crop that grows, right? This isn't something that you just like. Right, to manipulate, and then it comes, and they're the biggest critics like the right. world's yeah. ever seen. Like they they rush the drying process yeah. of this flower; it exactly. wasn't even cured yeah. properly. It's like you're why no do you win. think they exactly. did that? Right? I tried to take. I had a unique perspective, one that I really valued, which was the dispensary side and the wholesale side. And right, because Rise Dispensary was right. also under your purview at that exactly. point as well. Exactly. So Rise Bethesda was was the processing license and still is that, that Chesapeake Alternatives received. And, and so, and with our partnership, uh, Rise Silver Spring as well. So I had been involved on the dispensary side heavily from the beginning as well as the wholesale. So in fact, each day, once operations began, I, I'd go to the dispensaries during the day and then usually the wholesale in, in the evenings. And it's really uh, it's a testament to the team out at, at Chesapeake Alternatives in Centerville that do an incredible job. Andrea, our chemist out there, is responsible for all those great products that people enjoy and the production team, keeping those things on schedule, You know, to your point, knowing what's coming, keeping a variety of strains out, which we believe in. But I also tried to... Um, you know, be understanding of the dispensary owner's perspectives because I was, you know, dealing with that during the day, ordering, seeing pricing. And, and you could have kept all the product for yourself and just sold out of mm -hmm. it. I mean, you didn't necessarily, I mean, you would have gotten crushed from all of us. But exactly, you relationships. Really, you could have <laughs> very like, easily, if you wanted of to, course, just sat yeah. on that. And but I'm sure I mean, there's people arguing for you to do that. Exactly. But again, relationships are everything. They're very important to me. And I knew that in this industry, it's too small. 
you start doing things like that and you find yourself alone pretty Having quickly. to rebrand your name. Yes, it gets pretty lonely <laughs> if you do that. Yeah. yeah. So we, you know, we wanted to keep everybody happy. But um, it's a tricky dynamic because, you know, I have a lot of, debt, of friends right? in this industry that are, are genuine friends that I'm very grateful for. And at the same time, at the end of the day, you are going home, you are competitors. And if you, you have to both acknowledge that, but it's a great, it's one of the things I love about the industry. It's truly collaborative. I mean, the number of times people dropped everything to help me in a meaningful way or give me in, you know, information that in most industries, it would never, ever happen. Share that stuff. You know, proprietary confidence. People just keep their cards really close to their chest. In this one, though, there's sort of this uh, us against the world mentality almost, which you it's know, a oftentimes it, it ends up being a great thing and people help each other out. Nice. What was your feeling when you guys got approved? Do you remember where you were at? Oh, of course. I was sitting in my living room. I had been pressing refresh <laughs> on my... <laughs> I, I'd been going like this right? for, yeah, what was it, like 4.30 those emails came in? I was just going, like, my computer too? had frozen by 20 times. Your application came at 4.30 on a yep. Friday, and I was doing the same thing, refresh, refresh. I, I really remember the processing the most, because that was the first one, and I just, I know I was sitting there in my apartment, just refreshing it, and I was so, I was just unbelievably nervous and running, you know, both scenarios through my mind, and... And I, I remember I, I called my dad as soon as I got it. I said, it worked. You know, we, we got it. And then I called Rebecca and we... Uh, called your dad before you called your partner? I did, I did. Oh, I my did. gosh. Because Pops had uh, been a big supporter, especially with the, uh, you know, just the stress of starting a new company sure. and, and learning all, a lot about the legal side and things. So I, I'm very fortunate. My family was uh, very supportive of me. Um, yeah, I, I was I was sitting in my living room doing the same thing, refresh, refresh, and then it popped up, and then I was like, I can't open this. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna find out now. Like, yeah. what if it says bad news? It's life changing. And one, then one way uh, or another. I read it, and I just I just started crying. Like, I just yeah. I was so overcome with emotion. Uh, we had worked so hard to write that application ourselves, and we you know we submit our application for fifty five hundred dollars. So at that thirteen point, minutes wow. before the deadline. Wow. Thirteen minutes before the deadline. <laughs> That's <laughs> amazing. Um, yeah, that includes all the fees. And we applied in two districts for 55. It's pretty wow. wild. We just, I quit my job. Mary Pack quit her job. We were just 14, 16 hour days. And Chuck was doing 20 hour days of splitting both. And it was, awesome. it was really a, one of those things. Like you look back at those times now, it doesn't even seem believable. It does seem like know, part yeah. of a movie sometimes when I think about like the I life know. that I was living and like how all this happened and the delay. I mean, that year of not knowing whether or not mm -hmm. the dispensaries were getting approved or not. I did everything from ten bar to sell software in China. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I was doing <laughs> I was doing Uber drives to pay the rent while we we're waiting for that application. Solid. Oh yeah. Yep, you got to do entrepreneurial yeah. life. Yeah, be, man, it's, right. it's, it's, it's a little you different do. now. No more regular paychecks once you decide to go down this road. And no, we just, you know, I make everyone come on this podcast. Tell every, tell the audience that you were broke when you got in the yeah. industry. Tell them. Oh yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I'm always like, did you take a pay cut or did you get a raise? Oh, I got a pay cut. Oh, to totally. <laughs> and and that was a big thing that I think I was a little naive to at the time. Was you're just taking your stability and your 
you know, financial security and tossing it out the window and, and rolling the dice. And, and by the way, for us, we signed documents that says like the FBI and anybody that wants to can come in for a warrantless yeah. search of our house and yep. like titles I mean, to your cars yep. and yeah. vehicles yeah. and houses. And yeah. like yeah. the personal infringement. I mean, like, you know, Mary Pat's got a letter, got a, a bank with her name on it saying that she's been part of a cannabis industry. I mean, sure. all these different things happen to us. It's And before we got a lot of the rewards. So it, it was you know, it's cool to, to talk about those times because for the most part, we've all survived and we're, yeah. we're all plateauing in the right trajectory and it's kind of cool. So you, um, you made the change and, and when um, you mentioned GTI, so first off, are Rhythm Vape Pens the best in the country? <laughs> I think so. I would, but I would it's argue pretty, but it's pretty cool. There's some awesome technology that is coming out now. I love watching and keeping up with kind of the relationship between technology and cannabis and the quality. And, uh, and the it's more, awesome the to more see. we're getting that uh, like big, we call it like big science, like introduced in the cannabis industry, we're seeing amazing like leaps and bounds mm-hmm. in terms of of. Getting in and really understanding, like the entourage effect is one thing, but to really understand CBG and CBN, mm-hmm. some of these lesser known cannabinoids, and really get into the terpene profiles and understand the kind of the give and play between the two, um, of course CBD and all of that. It's really exciting, and mm-hmm. as the equipment gets better and the technology gets better, as more professionals don't feel like they're throwing their lives away and feel like they can justify right. to their family that they can come over, we're seeing. Right. We're really seeing um, like a renaissance within the exactly. cannabis industry. I can uh, I can give you a little uh, window into the thinking behind Rhythm and how these brands, how we brought these uh, brands to Maryland. If you want, we uh, again just going back to when we first got the license. There's sort of two approaches that you can take as an entrepreneur when you find yourself with a license in a new market in this space. You can pursue the mom and pop route so to speak and exactly and there's a lot to be said for that i think it's actually a really important part of the industry um and the other the other route is entering a strategic partnership so anytime you have a limited license market like maryland come out as most medical markets are you're going to have people who didn't win licenses who uh, are well qualified capitalized who you know operate in other states who bring resources that you are guaranteed not to have if you've never done this before and on the personal level as an entrepreneur that was a a challenging perspective for me to find initially i didn't want us to you know need help i didn't want to kind of share this baby you know yeah you create this (laughs) baby and it's it's your your thing and your life and you know your blood sweat and tears go into it and uh at multiple points during the the startup process if you're lucky enough you're going to face points where you have to give pieces of it up and uh ultimately you know we decided that we it would be most advantageous to us if we had those resources brought in uh prefabricated brands that uh, the formulations for which were existing and that we could practice on and train on of course, capital, uh, retail, same thing. You know, developing a retail brand from scratch is tricky. So, Rise was operating two stores, um, one in Nevada and one in Illinois, I believe, at the time. And uh, we saw with GTI a partner who could respect our vision for the um, importance of patient interaction, uh, quality, and 
bring us a diverse brand suite. So me being on the medical side, it was really important to me, and I love the product, you know, I have for a long time, and I wanted to make things that I would want to use and that I felt would, would help people. So, um, you know, part of that was our interest in Mary's Medicinals. I think transdermal technology has a huge place in the industry. Uh, I tried to think about patients like my parents and grandparents who, you know, maybe aren't necessarily going for the rhythm pens and want something a bit more mild that accomplish different things. I was very interested in uh, the anti-emetic, the anti-nausea properties of, of cannabinoids, and I saw transdermal patches as a great delivery method for those. Um, also, just more of a of a systemic rather than a localized product, so something that's going to you know, target the whole body uh, over a long period of time. I thought there was a real void in the market for um, accurately dosed extended release products. And so Mary's Medicinals I saw as the leading brand. GTI was able to bring them to us uh, as well as Rhythm. And with Rhythm, you know, for vape pens, this was a huge focus of mine and where I felt uh, my knowledge could, could really be valuable and where I wanted us to differentiate. So I had some philosophical rules. You know, I did not want additives in a product. Um, I wanted the hardware to be of a certain quality, of which there's a huge range. And I wanted the, know. you know, and I wanted terpenes. I wanted terpene retention was, was a borderline obsession. Cannabis derived. Yes. Oh, cannabis derived. Uh, not, absolutely. Not just absolutely. literal from lavender. Some, absolutely. Some, the real stuff. Exactly. I am a big believer in full spectrum effects of the, of the plant terpene profiles. And we've seen amazing results with that. And I wanted to show people terpene profiles and help expose them. And, you know, they're still on every package in part because we want we want to educate the end consumer. And indica sativa hybrid really don't get you far enough with understanding effects. So terpene profiles, uh, additive free, you know, using CO2, um, you know, even the machine selection, which is how you and I ended up uh, meeting, spent a lot of time touring machine facilities out west and the extraction companies. Yeah, and uh, exactly. And that's right. That was actually IES, that was the connection yeah. with Zach Hopkins. Yes, the salesman for the extractor. He's with Kush Company now. Yep. And so, really, just creating a high quality sort of connoisseur artisan type process for those products, uh, and having a lot of diversity. We wanted to offer. Uh, you know, sublingual products, um, things that, so we have a, a, a great tincture line and uh, called the Field Collection. And the same thinking went into that with with the ingredients behind it. And now, you we're, know? And, you know, Field Collection's got an amazing sleep tincture, which is right. CBN, right. which I'm really big on. Me too. Uh, and THC. So I, I'm glad, glad you brought up CBN. That was another uh, sort of reason that I was so interested in this partnership and these brands was um, companies like Mary's were one of the few that we're even working with CBN, and it's tricky. On the production side, CBN is not easy. I think it's one reason you don't see a ton of it. Of course, it's also one of the cannabinoids less talked about in general. Everyone talks about CBD, but CBN, CBG, these are still sort of under the radar. Um, CBN is a degradative, so it if you, you know, leave, leave yeah, your bag of weed, weed in, the, in the shelf, yeah, mm -hmm. in the drawer for a year, you know, it's going to go up in, in CBN. But of course, that that method is not practical 
to use in a lab. So creating a lab, uh, you know, requires a very careful balance of, of heat and other parameters that, again, Andrea, our chemist, um, you know, did an amazing job figuring out and that I was really excited and anxious to bring to market because in addition to its sleep aid properties, I think one of the most exciting things about CBN is the neuropathic benefits. Uh, it seems to be very helpful for people with things like neuropathy. Um, we actually, at our Bethesda store near Walter Reed, we have a lot of veterans come in and um, we're finding amputees uh, and people with other nerve-based injuries really like the CBN products. So That's excellent. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I really appreciate your perspective of, of kind of your journey because as of now, we've, we've kind of done the opposite in terms of um, <clears throat> we've stayed the mom and pop route, but there's give and takes to both strategies. Mm -hmm. And like when people see how long it takes us to roll something like online ordering yeah. or when you think about how our shop looked 18 months ago and how it looks like now and the progressions and the iterations and the advancements that we had to do because we didn't have cap, we didn't have a full resource of capital. We didn't have tr proven strategies um, for our CBD business. I mean, for Chuck and I literally spent months just getting a box and packaging approved. Yeah. Right, and that like, has the right nomenclature FDA, on there. Yeah, you don't say anything flagged. you're not allowed to say, but you still make it so that someone can understand it when they're just coming. You know, one of our retailers says, "How come it doesn't say CBD on the box?" Well, I can't. Right, I can't against the rules. Against <laughs> yeah. the rules. Um, and I think you know sometimes we struggle, and we you know we're really proud of our DNA and what we put out there, but I don't this method that we chose if we were a processor or a grower we would get we would get eaten up by the big guys i mean it really is a strategy that's great if you can do it but there's a reason why you see there's going to be eight cure leaf or seven right. now cure leaf dispensaries and there's several rise dispensaries and it's because it's not easy and when people have this proven model and, and this this you know multi-state operator saying i'm doing this in three other states and it's working for me you know it's it's compelling to small businesses and like we sit around here talking about how we don't make a lot of money and how all the money we make goes to pay taxes well imagine these dispensaries that there's five within 15 square miles and they're doing half the volume that we're doing and right. their margins aren't as good because they're not as savvy as we are like these guys are all potential to be bought up in the next two years and i think there's going to be a ton of m a over the next 24 months where multi-state operators are going to come in to these dispensaries that can't pay their taxes that are, this is way harder than they originally imagined it was going to be they're feeling the pressure from their neighbors and they say you know what I give up I'm just going to bring in kind of the expert I think so you know Maryland also creates a unique landscape with they don't require vertical integration so they've allowed for you know single retail license holders and vertical ones and everything in between and that's created a, a difficult uh, landscape for everyone I think because you know even for the the independent processor you know dealing with with pricing on with other vertical growers and things like that and truthfully with my experience being being absolutely honest i wasn't sure if if it was the right route for us i was, it was a very difficult decision for me whether to to stick to it ourselves or to partner you know because you do feel um you know a little bit of a sense of loss of control i think for any 
any founder of, of any company. And Which you might feel just by bringing on investors, right? Like yeah. you talked about like <clears throat> no one in our, I don't know anyone in our position, no matter how rich they are, there's no one that's 100% owner of their license right. that I know of. Right. And I'm sure maybe there's one existing out there, like a little guy. But to your point, like, and as you start giving away, the minute you ask for a dollar, chances are that person feels that they now get to give you their opinion. Exactly. And so as a mom exactly. and pop, you, you don't have the option of doing it on your own. You're either going to borrow money and hope that you maintain control or like Mike, you bring in a strategic operator and hope that you get to maintain some control. But chances are you have to bring on somebody and you're going to be fighting for that control. That's right. And for me, being my first endeavor into the space, it was the right move. In the end, there's no question about it. It's helped you know, helped us business-wise tremendously. And over the last few years, you know, just personally, I've become more confident in my understanding of the industry. And in our case, this was the better way to go. But in new markets, I, I view it a little bit differently, of course. Yeah, and that's a great transition into some new markets. But the last thing that I will say is just shout out to GTI. I mean, people ask me, like, you know, what companies do you think are strong that are that are out there? I would I would argue that GTI is one of the stronger, and this is no reflection, you don't even need to comment on it, but just my opinion is that GTI is one of the stronger companies out there um, in the marketplace. The products that they put out to market um, are of the highest quality. I'm really excited to see flower coming Um in the near future, I know dog walkers are coming soon with right. somebody else's somebody else's flower. That's right. Um, They've been great partners. And I'll ar- yeah. like I argue my rhythm pen against anybody in the country. Like uh, Thank you. I basically, I, you know, I, I am a vape cart enthusiast. I. And thank you for letting me be so bougie and snobby about my vape cards because <laughs> I get to be like, "Fuck you, mean you don't have eight percent terpenes in your vape card?" You and like, both. You you both. Better, like, yeah. yeah, like, and and that was. When the THC, when the THC noise was deafening and all people wanted was THC, 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 your carts were like one of the products of like refuge for us because we could say like, forget THC. Like, you ever tried something that's got two percent pining or three percent pining? Like, how about six percent myrcene or five percent myrcene? Yeah. Like, go chill on this seventy-six percent THC. But four and a half percent myrcene and beta carophylline and linalool that's just going to chill you out, and then tell me that terpenes don't make a difference. Exactly. That was a that was one of the challenges. It was a lot of fun, but remains challenging to pass on the terpene knowledge and importance down to the customers because it's one thing to do it in our own stores where we're there, we're training the people. You know, we can control the flow of information. But when you're distributing to a number of other dispensaries in the state, it was important to us to send our own people there, educate personally about our products. You guys were heavy on the pop-ups early. Yes, because we wanted to make sure that that patient, patient consultation was providing the right information to the consumers. Plus, the fact that the terpene profiles are just so much more effective for treating specific symptoms. So we've seen great results. Yeah, and and like everything else, the prices come down significantly. Mm-hmm. I remember when those bad boys were eighty dollars for that oh, yeah. half cart, right? Of course. Yeah. I mean, and and now I think you know they're probably closer to sixty, sixty-five, and yep. maybe even fifty. I think a lot of that was more wholesale, more growers coming online. You know, for a while it was just you know one, two growers. So it was. Well, yeah. I mean, I know what you guys were paying. Yeah. I mean, they were, you guys were paying for starting material. Mm-hmm. What I was paying for end product in some cases, it's it's pretty crazy. All right, so. Yeah. Um, Kudos to you for um, 
bringing in a, a great operator and, and passing the baton a little bit to GTI, but then that frees you up a little bit. So probably the thing that I was most interested in talking to you about was not necessarily reminiscing, we can do that, but your knowledge on the future emerging domestic markets and international markets is what really intrigues me. Um, no one ever talks about international markets and it's sure. something that um, that you have uh, at least a fundamental understanding of and a high level understanding. Um, so let's keep it domestic and we'll work our way out. So okay. domestically, what are the top three markets that are hot that are coming on right now? Sure. So the last three that I've been looking at uh, recently have been New Jersey, Missouri, and Illinois. Um, they're all unique. They always are. Um, Illinois is transitioning from medical into recreational. New Jersey is expanding its medical program, anticipating recreational very soon. And Missouri is launching their their new medical program. Is Missouri the um, one with like a couple hundred dispensaries, like 600 or something crazy like that? Uh, oh, yes. So that that is a great point. So as we look at these markets, um, you know, I kind of use an algorithm of sorts, uh, you know, to evaluate the different parameters to see how attractive the market is. And, you know, those are things like state population, qualifying conditions, number of licenses, uh, you know, regulatory we always, we restrictions. Always qualifying conditions mm -hmm. and yeah, number same, of licenses. And populations yeah. of local population. areas. It's like, yeah, exactly. try to model something exactly. out there. You know, flower, it's got a flower. Right, yeah. are they restricting any major categories like edibles, flower, things like that. Um, and you know, one of the main things that I'm always concerned about is saturation from too many licenses. You know, we, we've seen it plenty of times, Colorado, Washington. If, you know, my, my really strategy entering these markets is coming in to limited markets, you know, not trying to enter a really progressive, saturated one. So for me, I try to really live by you know, the entrepreneurial lesson of being able to walk away from opportunities as, as much as dive in. So for, for us, after taking a really close look at Missouri, the number of, of licenses that they were planning to award for 12 million, million people were, were in the hundreds. And so I, I felt that with a population of, um, I think about 9 million, so you know, a little more than Maryland, but similar qualifying conditions, similar program, what I anticipate to be a similar patient rollout rate. The Missouri market was, was geared to take a long time to become profitable. So we chose to, to wait. There's, there's also often a very significant requirement to partner locally in whatever state you go to on some level. And if you can't find a way to do that in a meaningful, valuable way, it's often just not worth, uh, well, in my opinion, not worth it, the pursuit. So in Missouri, for those combined reasons, we decided to hold off. And I'll be interested to see how that um, market works with the number. Are you guys going after all three verticals in some of these so, markets? Yes. Yeah. So again, you know, going back to what we talked about in, in Maryland, I did learn the value of having your, your cultivation in your supply chain and, and the expense of not. So also with quality, you know, we've seen a range of quality control in Maryland and other markets, and the ability to own that yourself 
is is invaluable. So we it's are amazing how much real quick. Yeah. To, to, if you don't know what he's talking about, like whether or not someone machine trims or trims mm -hmm. or when they dry or how they cure, to the processor makes all the difference That's in right. the world. That's right. And at the end of the day, when someone picks up a rhythm pen, they're going to see Chesapeake Alternatives GTI on the package. They're not going to see the cultivator necessarily that that goes into it. But if there's a problem with the product at any level, it's your reputation as the processor on the on the line. So if you're taking in input material from whomever, you need to be ready to stand behind it and make sure that it's we saw that with the with the recall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>. Honestly, um, <laughs> for to get the star dog vape pens out of Corpon and Chuck, um, Chuck in my hands from the state was like, I almost wanted the inspector to come down and grab myself. <laughs> Cause I was like, I know there's nothing wrong with those damn right. pens. And we finally got the one gram star dog pens in and now you're going to make right. me take them away. Right. Like, so yeah, to, to that point, vertical integration is part of my new approach always. So we're applying for, for all three in all these states, New Jersey, um, has a ton of political support. Governor Murphy out there is, is very, very into the cannabis world. And they ended up at the last minute scaling back from over 100 licenses to about 30 or so. So while we already had a lot of content built for that application, again, we just decided pump the brakes. We can always apply in, this, in New Jersey when the time's right, but we didn't feel that that was uh, the best chance. So Too competitive and they were probably already given exactly. out. Exactly, just didn't feel quite right. and. And the license it's a fine line, right? If it's too yes. easy, then, exactly. then we don't want to go that route. And if exactly. it's too hard, you don't want to go that route. And exactly. We've dabbled in the consulting thing a little bit, not anywhere near to the extent that you did. And now we're starting to I look at some different states and stuff. And for us, it's about finding like a partner that has the political local capital. Exactly. Because we had that in Salisbury. Exactly. It was one of our biggest keys to our success. And I know that I can't replicate that. That's in, it. That's in, it. And somewhere else, right? That's it. Is politics, relationships, you know, connections. It's huge in the in this business. And you know, you and I both went through it in Maryland. And and I continue to be active in in the legislative and political communities. But for as valuable as I saw it being in Maryland, I also it reinforced the fact that going into new markets that I don't have the same level of connections there. So always start start early in any new market and try to find kind of a local on the ground navigator who does have those and whose you can leverage. Uh, so that kind of brings me to Illinois, which we've settled on and are pursuing pretty aggressively right now. I would say I have sort of become a, a inadvertent student of regul of these regulations over the last couple of years. You know, not I couldn't yeah, yeah. Say, the word regulation <laughs> literally used to make me feel sick when I first was learning about Maryland because it just seemed like this huge book of things that you could screw up and get in trouble that, for. That Comar binder yeah, with the black exactly. binder on it. We still have it hanging up in the shop. Exactly. And over time, I've come to really appreciate them and really enjoy learning the intricacies of them, intricacies, because uh, for one, evaluating a new market, they're, they're huge. And, uh, and two, the more complicated they are, it actually is an advantage if you can figure out a way to stay compliant with them. It can really help separate you. Uh, and so Illinois just released new regulations that I think are by far the best in the country. They are the most thoughtful and evaluated 
other states' mistakes. And they they really hit it from the business side, competition-wise, and from the social equity standpoint, which, you know, we know what happened in Maryland. That was a big lesson. Um, you know, the, the state didn't feel that there was any precedent of discrimination because it was a nascent industry. And that backfired in a way that, um, you know, resulted in, in more, yeah, in, in more, more licenses. And it's a really, it's something I've come to really appreciate the importance of diversity in the space and, and the lack of equal opportunity. Me so. too. And, and even the disproportionate way that folks have been punished for cannabis based upon socioeconomic exactly. and the color of your skin. I mean, um, I think we struggle sometimes with, with, so kudos to Illinois, and I'll be excited reading up with the regulations. But I think with all of our legislatures, there's so many micro vertical topics within cannabis, whether it's social justice, whether it's um, pediatric patients, whether it's gun rights, whether it's all these different things that affect cannabis. It's tough to get us all to come together on things mm-hmm. uh, sometimes. So because there's so many different special interests. So kudos to Illinois for getting it right. But you're right. I mean, the social justice thing is something that it's tough to ignore. If you're someone that believes in facts, then yeah. you look at the, the stats in terms of arrests and then the repercussions of those arrests and stuff. It's something that needs to be addressed. Can I jump, jump in there? Yeah. I just uh, One thing that Illinois did that's really amazing and jumped out at me is on that front, they're doing an automatic expungement for almost 800,000 marijuana-related crimes that will automatically just erase erase the records of, of people. And I think that is hugely impactful. And they, just a couple other things on the social equity piece, they're requiring 51% participation uh, locally from minorities in disproportionately affected areas, which we've seen some other states do, but Illinois is requiring it in a very meaningful way. And um, they're creating a $20 million, uh, basically minority, small business fund for applicants that can't otherwise get loans, which I think is are two you know, very real ways that, sh- sure, they make life a little more difficult for applicants like myself, but they're important and they're going to have real results. So it's exciting. It is. Um, so not just like minority applicants, but just like if you're a Joe Smo and you want to actually try to do what we did, like one of the reasons that we are these outliers is because like, quite frankly, it's not an easy business for someone of, of meager means right. or average means to exactly. execute on. Like you're competing against millionaires and billionaires. Like it's tough for anybody. There's no loans. There's no small bank that's yeah. you're going to walk exactly. in and convince Mr. Smith that you got a great business plan. Like there's a reason why these small, like a lot of these small dispensaries are struggling and they're getting bought up and stuff. It's because of the dynamics of this stuff. So without a fund like that, where like, it's one thing if, if you're a minority applicant and you can write an amazing application, but, but then what? You're probably going to some rich white guy That's to get it. the money. And I've done some, you know, through mentorship and consulting, I've, you know, been involved with some minority applicants in different different realms. And that's exactly what happens is at the there's always a point where capital is is needed and finding the right partner for that. Harvest and in Pennsylvania, right? You know, and maintaining maintaining meaningful diversity is is tricky. So I'm a big, big believer in it, trying to do my part to help facilitate it it's um it's definitely important so when is the deadline for illinois so illinois is staggered they're uh actually not even releasing applications till mid-october and then the dispensaries uh, will be due around january 
and the growing and processing uh, in the spring. So they're doing dispensary um, first, huh? So the dispensaries first. They're going to award seventy-five. There, this is just for recreational. So the existing medical license holders in Illinois, as is often the case, will be grandfathered in. Okay. I'll have about a year. Now, as soon as they get the dispensaries open, they'll be able to get product from the medical side. That's right. right. So um, we're we're really pursuing the recreational side. Illinois, I think, is a great recreational market. Um, they, they always have been on the black market in Illinois. It's similar to Florida. Significant, uh, it's, it's always been a significant cannabis market there. And they're, one of the really exciting things about Illinois is they're legalizing um, consumption lounges, which is the first state to really uh, regulate it. Of course, it'll be up to municipalities, and it'll probably be a little while before you see them. But, uh, and then actually, Illinois is the first state to legislate cannabis sales. So not by a vote, but to actually legally say this is the new law. Everything else has been done by referendum? Yes. Um, the closest thing was Vermont, but that was just uh, possession. So, so go ahead. exciting. All right. Um, <clears throat> so I get this question a lot. Um, what if Maryland goes wreck? What are you going to do? Right? Mm-hmm. And I, my kind of canned answer is... For me, it's just an access issue. It's just more people have access to my shop. I'm not changing the way that I approach cannabis. I'm not going to all of a sudden have tie-dye tapestries hanging in Nag Chamba burning in the fucking waiting room. That's not my deal. I've never been like that. Um, it'll be a holistic wellness campus where if someone on a whim wants to be able to try cannabis, they're going to be able to do it without having to go see a doc and get a stamp and all that. So for me, right. it's more of like a bureaucracy uh, issue more than like a culture of we're going to be patient centric and wellness focused. Um, I assume you're kind of a similar mindset, right? Like you're not just going to all of a sudden try to like get people, you know, get 14 year olds to start ripping dabs, right? Yeah. yeah how'd you know that's our, that's, our, <laughs> that's what the whole business is yeah. predicated on. Cardoza strategies. <laughs> yeah. Broke their mission yeah. statement. Come on in on Saturdays. We'll no, we, um, I think you and I have always had a similar mindset, Darby, about the medical side of this. It really does matter to us. The medicine is critical. People need to have a medical access to the medical side of this. Owners in the industry have a responsibility for when markets move from medical to recreational to keep their medical as a priority, even though the numbers aren't as attractive. Uh, you know, we I balance this all the time. There's the business side where recreational, it, it is what it is. It's access, it's higher volume, higher higher sales numbers. And I'm a big believer in access. I think that people should have this. But I also dread a world where patients can't go into a store and get really good medical information because it's too get focused on Get a CBN or exactly. a tincture because so, all they see is... Exactly. That needs to be preserved. And my hope is that dispensaries will keep, maybe it's a section of their store or... There will medical access will still exist. So in Illinois, like a state in Illinois, for example, um, just a random question because I know it's done differently in different states. So would they allow a recreational medical shop to kind of share their same facility? And there might be two doors, almost like it is in Colorado, or are they separate? Interestingly, kind of Illinois is only allowing the existing medical license holders to remain. So there will be no new uh, medical licensees in Illinois. So. What will likely happen is those existing stores will open either locations in the same place that are recreational, as you're describing, or separate recreational locations. I hope that they do it in the same structure, just because I think it it's a little more practical. 
But um, yeah, that, that what's is the place. tax in Illinois? Did they, did they come so up with Illinois did it very interestingly. They, I can give you the breakdown, but they're they wanted to make an effort to one give back to the right parts of of state government, like schools, uh, community development, and two to create tiers that address the different types of products. So they've broken it down into uh, three tiers. Of course, sales tax still still applies. If the product is over 25% THC, under 25%, or if it's an infused product. So they're by doing that, they're trying to address the different margins for different products. And um, I believe there's a 7% uh, tax at wholesale, but um, they, they did it in, in an interesting way. But it's, but it's not it's not like a crazy number, like 35% no, or like no. something like that to the end user. No. Um, you mentioned Florida. What's about Florida's market? I know that like they didn't have flour for a while, and someone told me that they were selling these like flour cake cups, where basically like people would like open the top and just yeah. pop the flour out. Yep, Florida started like many states do with a low THC program, which I think is pretty harmful. I think it's been states' ways of getting their feet wet, getting comfortable with the idea of a program, but it ends up hurting. It's too restrictive. The companies can't flourish. And it doesn't actually provide much benefit to the to the patients. The street, if, if these medical programs don't offer folks that are seeking relief what they want, they're just going to go to the street. They're not going exactly. to. They're exactly. not going to be compelled to come into a dispensary. We're at a, a little bit of a turning point right now, I think, where we're, my dispensary is finally as competitive as, as street pricing, yeah. and I have a, a much more products. The argument has never been better for someone to go and get their card, where right. when we first opened up, and I'm $70 for the, my most expensive eighth. That's not a very compelling argument to someone who's, who's got a, a buddy who he trusts, who's getting exactly. it for 40. Exactly. It's the relationship to the black market is something I think cannabis entrepreneurs need to respect and understand and realize that it does have an impact on our day to day. And, you know, decisions. I, I think it's important when you're evaluating a new market and when you're setting your prices to think about the black market for a lot of reasons, whether anti-diversion or patient sign-up, like you're talking about, incentivizing people, uh, diversity of product. Um, it it's a very real player for us. So Florida had this like week low yeah. THC program. So they've expanded now. You know, the flower allowance was a big announcement down there. So. Now they have a pretty well regulated market. It's just being built out. Um, there's a few rise, rise locations that are open. I do, especially on the retail side. I think it's going to be a very healthy market down there. There's a lot of growing expertise in Florida. I spoke to some people down there. Of course, they've had similar diversity snags along the way. Uh, the Black Legislative Black Caucus down there um, froze the program briefly to to address the issue. And, Sound about par for the course. But I think that with their history of agriculture down there, there's some really talented local growers. So I hope to see a lot of greenhouses and a lot of um, local citrus farmers and people like that participating in the industry. That's really neat. Uh, any other markets that are kind of on your radar, Arkansas and all? In the U.S., I, th I think Illinois is the most attractive. On the consulting side, I've had a, a lot of uh, interest in Michigan. Uh, coming along Massachusetts, of course, for another good, healthy recreational market coming on the on the East Coast. Uh, so that that's where we've been. And then, of course, I'm always watching and interested in the 
conservative states like Virginia and and southern states that are yeah. surprisingly starting to There's, get you know get into uh, that's it. That's the I mean for us when we look at these other markets like yeah. that's the most interesting for yeah. us because it's like the last piece of the country. I mean that and exactly. pieces of the Midwest right that really exactly. haven't been able to crack. Exactly. Whole yeah, like Arkansas seems cannabis. like they have some decent uh, qualifying conditions and mm-hmm. looks like their licensing wasn't overly robust. Uh, they're just starting to come online now. Um, but I think, yeah, like the, honestly, the deep south and the, around the college circuit, like all of that stuff gets, yeah. gets us excited for, for future markets and is very much in line with our model. I mean, we have a very patient-centric, pretty conservative approach in terms of how we look within our community. You know, we got people out there that are way more braggadocious and, you know, yeah. way more recreationalized than they are medical. And I think that would definitely not fly in a place like that exactly. for what we do and, our, you know, kind of how we do things that would be more appropriate one of the things that i enjoy doing the most is uh political advocacy and um sort of the environment i've come to love being in more than any is a room a room full of really conservative whether politicians or just citizens who don't support this and who for whatever reason are are opposed and i see it as just an opportunity i i just really love getting to change people's minds and help teach them with facts you know about the realities of this and help them see the upside and i've gotten to do that on the state level a few times and now federally uh working with a few people down on the hill different congressmen who are you're there with gail right uh yeah yeah exactly yep for the banking act and because you know these people are going to be the ones creating the new legislation that will affect all of us so it's um, and it's our responsibility to educate them. Is. I mean, exactly. As frustrated as we get that they don't understand That's what's right. going on, we didn't know what was going on in our industry a year That's and a half it. ago. How are they going to be experts? Is the right word. We're we're all stewards, I think, of the industry and, and have a duty to do it. So I want to um, I want to go back to that piece when we start diving into in opioid. We'll kind of end mm-hmm. on that. So the last piece, let's talk international a little sure. bit. So outside the U.S., obviously we know Canada's got has a, an adult use program now for six months ish. Like was it like the first of the year, or was it Canada's? I don't, I don't like know. That, yeah. When? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> are, what, are there any other emerging markets like in Europe or anywhere that like have your attention? Sure. So. The, the international side is really interesting. The My interest was really piqued with the Canadian legalization, as you just said. The supply diminished within three days for the entire country. And you'll hear this argued both ways about um, when there will be enough supply or if they can meet it. In my opinion, it will continue to be a struggle for Canada to supply its consumers for the next several years, you know, maybe, you know, maybe more. And um, I just think that all the numbers that we've seen so far, we, if you look at what happened there right away, that's, I'm, I'm pretty confident in that. There are some pretty large scale producers in Canada, more so than anywhere else in the world that do a great job, but the number of them compared to the population just, uh, I don't, I don't have a lot of confidence in that. So I took that idea and figured like any other product in the world, eventually they're going to have to import it at a lower price. And there's also so many benefits to cannabis markets on the hemp side and the the THC side with bringing it to other countries, jobs, economic stimulus, you know, and other countries are looking around at it, thinking to themselves, 
this could be our chance to become, you know, the exporter or the producer of this. Yeah, I mean, growing hemp in Sri Lanka is a whole lot cheaper than growing hemp in Alabama. That's right. And and these products, THC and, and hemp, are cachet exports, which are things like coffee beans that are the value of which is increased by where it's produced. So when you buy a Colombian coffee bean uh, or, or wine from Bordeaux, part of the value comes in where, where it was made and how it was made. And other countries are catching on to this. So the, the last year or so has been a process on both sides, the import and the export, uh, with countries gearing up to be global suppliers and countries gearing up to import it. And they've been regulating it, trying their best at, at least to regulate it. It's very complicated and very nerve-wracking for a lot of these companies. On the Canadian side, the Canadian Border Agency is sort of their customs. Um, you know, it's a big undertaking for them to figure out logistically how to do this. So what we've been doing and, and what I see a big opportunity in is trying to connect those dots. So. The big uh, export countries that are, are gearing up are mostly South America. Colombia is is certainly looking to be the biggest player in export. Um, and so securing kind of the supply side and the local permitting, you know, you talk about relationships and politics, everything is magnified when you go to these other countries, the, the importance of those the, things. At the so, local level. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, we have, I have a great partner, Mike Axelrod. You don't who, have tons of pool when you walk over exactly, to, uh, to exactly, Columbia? Exactly. The uh, Montgomery County kid just <laughs> doesn't, doesn't matter anymore. Um, so we you have to find those. That yeah. last name sounds a little familiar. Yeah, it does. So, yeah, his dad worked, worked in the Obama administration. He, we brought him as a strategic advisor to help us navigate these things. And he's been really effective in, in helping make the right introductions and keeping us, you know, out of trouble and and all the really important things to do it the right way when you go into another country. Because on a small scale, when you go into a new state, you have to do right by the community. You have to become a good neighbor. You have to keep people happy. Again, magnified when you go into another country, you not only need to do this for moral and ethical reasons, but there's all kinds of political dynamics at play that make it important to to do things right. So there's the, the supply and export side and then the import side where um, you've, again, being regulated, you've got to get everything approved on both ends and the logistics in between. You know, that's really, anybody can talk about you know, have an idea for moving it from one country to another, but the logistics. Bro, of it's this tough is to tough. move from Salisbury yeah, to that's Baltimore. It. Yeah. Let alone, you gotta love the let challenge. Get some international waters and and, you got it. and like you're not just getting a boat that's just gonna have your stuff on it, right? Mm -hmm. Like no one has their own boat. You're going on a shipping vessel. It's got. 15,000 other companies stuff right, on it. They it's may right. not want your bags of yeah. weed on that boat. Let me tell you, try calling a Dutch shipping company and, and <laughs> asking about this and you will get quite an earful. But uh, that's what so I love about it. So are businesses and companies in other countries that can legally export, like if a Canadian company, for example, are there countries that they can legally export to, like today? If so, not, not yet. Um, Canada is starting to sniff around the, the export side. Um, there are a couple countries around Uruguay, oddly enough, was the first to really set up for this, around the world that can legally export. The problem is getting a receiver. So they, you know, you have to have an improved importer. 
And that seems to be a little bit trickier to get regulated, the, the import side. I think Canada is really looking to be on the receiving end for, for a while. To help fill that, that demand yeah, gap. Yeah, exactly. And so you're seeing countries, Israel, I think, will be a, a great exporter. I know they're, they're interested. They are working on regulating it. There's some political complexities there. But the level of research and science and medicine that Israel puts into this industry is amazing. Yeah. So I think they'll, they'll be players. When you get into the industry and you realize that 1976 Machula was in Israel in a yeah. slab working That's it. They have the largest night. medical research database, I'm pretty sure, in Israel. I, I would cool. agree that. And um, <clears throat> But to your point, you know, it might be easier for someone in South America from a climate and a geographic stand. Like once we start getting this global competition, right. it'll be IP, but it'll also be distance and yeah. like all these other things exactly. that'll play into it. And and I think there will be a kind of like we have in the craft beer industry, there an artisan market where consumers are attracted to the methods by which it was grown. You know, there's you know, it's kind of a novelty element to something that's grown in the sun in Colombia, and uh, you know, same as same as with the coffee. And so, for me, one of the important aspects is bringing that process to the end consumer and documenting and showing it along the way and doing things the right way, sustainably and socially conscious. I think internationally, the single biggest challenge facing any company trying to enter the cannabis space is the commoditization of the product. It's an inevitability. It's happening right now in front of us. And yes, and everyone is sort of, I think, looking to start off with hemp and either stick with it or eventually transition into THC. But right now, the game is about proof of concept. Just this morning, I, I read that uh, Pharmacy Yellow was able to move a package from Colombia to Switzerland. Uh, and these are single you know, one-time executions right now that are happening infrequently that are big. I mean, the ability to just get it, even a small volume of product from point A to point B and show that you're able to get the approvals and through all the regulations, it's all proof of concept right now. So Yeah, it's it, it, there was no big win. Like, no one made yeah. any money off of that. It was just, look what we did, and we didn't get exactly. arrested. And <laughs> I, but I guarantee you they're celebrating. Rightfully yeah. so. It's, it's a big, big accomplishment. And... It's good progress, but I think I can't imagine the lack of guidelines on an international level. I mean, yeah. like, literally, like we didn't know if I could That's drive nice. to Centerville and pick up vape right. pens from GTI, exactly, and no one could tell us whether we were breaking the rules or not breaking the rules. And I wasn't breaking interstate commerce, yeah. exactly, or international <laughs> trade <laughs> regulations. That's it. Like <laughs> international treaties and mm -hmm. laws. I mean, like. So one thing I learned from Maryland that I applied to this is. I used to be afraid of the regulators. I used to just look at them like they were the police ready to pull me over. In reality, they're incredibly important relationships that it has to be done the right way. But if you engage with them early on, you can often end up with an opportunity to affect the regulations, to help advise them on it, and make sure that you're doing things right. And, and to your point, it's very, very complicated internationally. I love that aspect, and that's what really gets me charged up about this. It's also what's keeping a lot of people out is it's super complicated and, and risky, but um, it's a lot of fun. And the commoditization, the pricing, I think most of the companies are trying to strike a balance between, again, just like in Maryland, 
first mover advantage, wanting to be early to market, but also not knowing what to do on pricing quite yet and trying to test the waters and try to get, you know, gauge the markets on, on pricing early so that they don't overcommit and and end up purchasing, you know, an unreasonable yeah, amount of setting pricing, pricing is, is really, really mm-hmm. difficult. When we first got our first batch of product, we didn't, I mean, we got obviously some advising from Curio and luckily everyone, well, actually they didn't. I mean, a lot of people stepped to Keystone pricing, but like you had uh, Allegheny who was charging, I think 25 a gram all the way up with no break and like really putting a bad taste in people's mouth. And I mean, we knew that we had to be more expensive than we wanted to be because we had to be. We were the first ones open and we knew that inventory and demand was was going to be, <clears throat> the demand was going to be much higher than the inventory that we had. Um but you still want to be fair to patients and you understand this is a yeah. medicine for patients. So it really is tricky. Um, and then back to the regulator piece. I mean, we have a really great relationship with MMCC inspectors um, because we dialogue with them. Right. I make I make my general manager every time we get an inspection, they ha- our, our team has to deliver three questions that aren't in the regulations to them to seek clarity nice. so that we're having these active engagements. And when you go to them and you pose questions, it becomes this working dynamic. You get this equal business stature where you guys are two folks in a working group in an industry, not so much like you're my yeah, boss, exactly. you're in charge of me. Our first inspection was not that way. I remember being scared to death of David yeah. Close. And like- Well, the black SUVs don't help with the intimidation either. No, I mean, they rolled off as like, it's Obama yeah. back there. I mean, geez Louise. I was like, oh God. Um, it's over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, at one point they were they were looking at our packing area, and we had a three inch by three inch square area in the very corner that wasn't covered by the camera. And he uh, he goes, "Who's the COO?" And Chucky raises his hand, and he goes, well, "How do you feel about there being a blind spot in your packing area?" And Mary Pat is like, "Listen, like I worked in a I worked in a pharmacy for years, and there's way more dangerous substances, and there's." Tons of blind spots. Yep. Like we have a training in place. We hired the right people. Like we have protocol in place to track diversion. Like and really had to like kind of like yeah for because I and at one point like I was trying to do that a little bit myself. And I remember looking at them and they were like, "This isn't going well. Stop talking to inspectors." <laughs> so yeah, it was yeah, cut that conversation off quickly. That's it. I mean, it, it the regulations are. I've come to realize that they are your friend if you study them and respect them and that they can really give you an advantage. Transparency is king too, right? Like if you're not being shady and like you have, I mean, there's been a couple of rules where we've been like, Hey, this isn't the best, um, favor the even like when the damn metric kept crashing and i got patients that are standing out waiting for the right. medicine i can't he serve them two hours right. away yeah. and came in in a wheelchair it's frustrating yeah it's frustrating. and working with them and saying look we gotta get an exemption yeah. policy up here and, and i'm dialoguing with yeah. joy and dialoguing with the commissioners and saying there's gotta be something we can do here now imagine doing that in spanish <laughs> it's like in a country that you know nothing about so it's, how's your spanish game i'm working on i'm taking online uh are weekly you? online classes yeah it's actually terrible but i'm trying to learn a little i need to learn a little bit but uh the yeah the interface with the regulators is fascinating it's entry level right now for them they're all trying to figure it out they're learning too right like these are the fda inspector has been on the job for 26 years has been to 10,000 pharmaceutical plants and you're 10,001 and he's ready to go i mean a lot of these guys hell especially us i mean they could have statistically they could have only been to three other dispensaries before they came to us because we were the sixth one approved and um, 
I know that there was other ones that were approved in the same yeah. timeline as us. So like it was a learning experience yeah. for those guys too. And you see their demeanor change as they get more confident in oh, their yeah. job and they know what they're yep. doing. They're not as, exactly. as standoffish either. So it's, it's everybody cool. realizes that it's going to be okay. Yeah. You know? Right. Because well, no, I mean, everyone's, everyone's fucked up enough times, yeah. made enough mistakes that we're like, all right, we yeah. can't be, t- exactly. can't be too hot or pedestal either breathe. way. Here. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> we're all human. We're all trying human. to figure it out. I mean, because we stared at those regulations for how long before we were actually able to like open and process product. Right. And, but you stare at it for so long and you have this idea of what it should look like in your head and everybody's idea is slightly different. Right. Exactly. Than everybody else's. There's a lot of room for yes. ambiguity and for yes. your own decision-making within those, yes. those, regulations. those regulations. And they affect your entire business strategy. So finding that stuff out early is important. May too. have a clinical director or shall have a clinical director. Exactly. That's a big fucking deal. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, all right. So how old are you? 31. 31. So definitely a, a young buck compared to my old 37-year-old ass. Um, you wouldn't guess from the hairline, though. That was the uh, the casualty of starting Chesapeake. I swear I lost all my hair. The so I just turned gray. I, I, am, so much yeah. more I gray. am so much more gray than I do now. And speaking of Obama, I think he's a president you could see who aged tremendously in office yeah and i feel like our poor general manager cody is is along the, yeah. that, that same aging it's schedule stressful, man. It's he not, came in as a young not, young buck and yeah. he's looking older and older every day um yeah so i kind of feel like i'm in the golden era of the opioid epidemic um i was in 11th grade when i saw kids start stealing their parents pills and snorting them and then they couldn't get pills anymore and then heroin came and then i'm at even to the point now where i'm at the point now where like it's once a month that someone from the one of the four classes of you know two up and two down lose a life and um it is something that i think is a really compelling it's really compelling when you put the two together next to each other, when you put cannabis and opioids next to each other, and there's been this year-long narrative, this, this lifelong narrative that, well, if, if you get it from a doctor, it's probably healthier than if you get something on the street. And you know, cannabis is this big, bad drug of Schedule One, and has no medicinal value, but let's just ignore this research and just start giving oxys out for long-term use, right? Things like that. So um, do you want to share? I mean, you have a really personal Please. story. Yeah. I, mean, I know that your application even reflected the name and memorial yes. of yeah. your body. And I appreciate the chance to talk about this. I think it's, a, it's an important issue. It's by far the single most significant motivator for me in the industry. It's, you know, I wake up every day with a fire lit to try to make an impact on this and it again it, it did prompt my interest in the space i i've been impacted by it like you said you know our demographic it hits everyone is the truth it's not just white guys in their 30s it's everybody families it's street drug it's it's everywhere it just happened to have a big impact on on my life from multiple angles i lost great friends um and basically for me, I read some research that indicated that it, it could have a real reduction on the addiction rates, the overdose rates, the pain management options. And I just decided there's really something to this. And, you know, I understood 
the opioid agonist addiction treatments, which are, you know, suboxone, methadone, things like that. I understood those were the most medically accepted treatment protocols. Kind of substitution therapy. Yeah. And I tried to educate myself more about how that stuff really works, you know, how it works on the receptors in the brain, you know, what is it accomplishing and what is it not. And I ended up just, you know, deciding that I wanted to bring products that helped people deal with this. I wanted to work one-on-one with people, anything I could do to help people get off of opioids or have this as an alternative. And uh, I did, I, I named my the parent company in Maryland, uh, JB17 LLC, which is named after John Plumberg, who is one of my best friends and classmates, fraternity brother, who battled opiate addiction for five, eight years. And I had a very personal window into it and worked with him and his family a lot and, and saw his struggle. And, uh, you know, so a lot of what we do is, is in his in his memory. And um, it really... I, I follow the research closely. It's an issue that's so controversial that you know I've worked with with uh, municipal, state, federal um, politicians on this. Not everyone understands it, and because of the federal law, it's lacking some credibility or legitimacy behind the research and the statistics. You know, we we've seen research that does indicate you know up to twenty five percent reduction in the opiate fatality rates when uh, medical or recreational programs are the launched. The GM article. Yeah, and the counter arguments, in my experience, are always, you know, there's there's no peer-reviewed long-term research studies on this um, and, and things like that. But the truth is that if you dig hard enough into this topic, there is real credible research out there um, from Journal of American Medicine, uh, CDC, lots of different places. And... There's no question. I mean, it's saving lives. I think both from the opiate withdrawal perspective, treating the symptoms of, of withdrawal uh, and helping people get through it in a safe way, maintenance of whether it's, you know, if someone was self-medicating for things like anxiety or, or things like that, and pain management uh, maintenance. And then something that I really believe in that I want to see is this becoming an option from the point of prescription, we'll call it, you know, the, the time when somebody leaves the dentist or the ER or wherever, rather than getting that prescription for Oxycontin at the pharmacy, I want those people to be able to go, you know, do not pass go straight to the dispensary and go see Mary Pat and get, get your, your capsule or your tincture instead of, not in addition to, but instead of, you know, it only takes three days for, for the brain to start becoming dependent on opioids. And with the prescription rates, I mean, pe- people are set up for failure. So Illinois tried to regulate this uh, by adding opioid use disorder to their qualifying conditions, and it did work. I mean, to their credit, they're the only state that has actually executed on this and done anything. It it works. It's still pretty restrictive, though. It, it requires a unique type of certification. Um, what I've found and what I've been working with Maryland with is that adding opioid use disorder as a qualifying condition isn't necessarily the best and most impactful way to do it, in part because it forces someone to be classified in this narrow window of opioid use disorder, when in reality, we don't necessarily know why. There could be mental health issues. Exactly. There could be other drivers exactly. that are People shouldn't pain. Have to, exactly. They shouldn't have to be labeled in this very specific classification. 
uh, again, coming back to access, it should be accessible to any person who would otherwise be getting an opioid, or maybe they already have one, or maybe they're addicted to street opioids. And then, yeah, to that, the last point that, that leads me to is synthetic versus non-synthetic opioids. You know, the a lot of times people, when they think about the opioid epidemic, they think about bottles of Oxycontin. And that's true. The synthetics are a huge problem. And the medical marijuana markets are having the biggest impact on synthetic opioid addiction. Again, these are, you know, Percocets, Oxycontin, things like that, anything made in a lab. What they're not targeting for a number of reasons are the non-synthetic opioids, the heroin and, and fentanyl that are infiltrating the, the streets. And one of the challenges that I see someone in my position having is how do I bring legal cannabis businesses to communities where people from that demographic will get a positive impact, where they will come to the store and, you know, take the time to come in and replace their opioids with with cannabis. But right now with pricing the way it is and with regulations, it's hard to tap into lower income communities. And it's a, it's a challenge that, uh, you know, I hope to, to meet in due time, but. You know. you're, you're bring an excellent point. So I get to see what we do in our dispensary day in and day out, right? So I've seen all the research and I know that it's not necessarily uh, FDA clinical trial research as you would find with other stuff, but it's still medical research. And to your point, uh, JAMA, Journal of American mm -hmm. Medicine, um, has a, a really a good article where they did retrospective um that's what they did retrospective, right, Dr. Hoffman? Uh, JAMA, is that the retrospective one? But I get to see the anecdotal of, of them coming in and, and these folks saying, you know, and the folks that have a dependency, which I think that's a better word than addiction, because um, they get there a lot of different ways. So they became dependent upon this pill for some of them was a car accident. Some of it was a surgery. Some of it was they were on they were abusing coke before that and they were abusing alcohol before that and they've had a history of abusing multiple substances so i think it's important to a have a very diverse mindset of just because to your point someone has a, a dependency or an addiction to opioids it's really tough to put them into a box or a category outside of that one characteristic there's a lot of characteristics lead up to that um for the folks that have chronic pain that are looking for something for a substitution side of things, we do a great job in, in handling those patients because we have a substance that will help substitute. Um, for the patients that have abused um, a lot of other things and they have these underlying mental health issues, then those patients sometimes can be more challenging for us to help if we don't address the mental health issues or the underlying issues first. So it's it's when you talk about this, I think a lot of people immediately put in their personal biases and their own perspective, and they think about the person that they know that battled with opioids. Mm -hmm. But for us, it's I've seen, you know, I, I've seen the variety and skew of of patients that come to us and say, "Okay, I'm here because." For the last four years, I'm constipated. Um, and a lot of these are functioning folks. They don't necessarily look like they have anything going on, like a lot of folks with mental health issues and anxiety and depression, right? They're not screaming for help, but by the time they get to us, they're in need and we work with them. And I see, you know, 
I see them bragging on social. I see them bragging to us that, hey, I haven't had a pain pill or I haven't had a sleeping yeah. pill, benzos. And right. even it's it goes beyond opiates. I mean, yeah. some of the stuff like Lyrica, you talk to a fibromyalgia patient that had a bad experience on Lyrica and they'll tell you some nightmarish stories and they come into us and we get them on cannabis and the, it's like night and day. Right. And I think the other thing they find a lot of times, and we see this through the events and stuff that we have, is they find other people like-minded that are struggling with the same issues, and they come together as a community and kind of have that that bond around cannabis and tell war stories about the past and the opiate addiction and all these other things. And I think, like, I think you were kind of speaking toward, like, to that point earlier where, like, it's a community. Yeah. And they can come in and feel supported. Um, exactly. It's something that we try and to that, yeah. engage with them. Recovery and Resource Center is like the local, once you would get out of inpatient or outpatient treatment, you would go there for some resources in terms of getting right. a job, getting kind of back on your feet. And uh, we had some, some really great meetings with them uh, the last couple of weeks. And they're believers in what we do. Um, we've reached out to some of the treatment centers. I mean, um, this is why Comico goes purple, which is the big opioid awareness mm-hmm. launch campaign. And we're in those conversations and I inject myself there. We sponsored the mental health matters, uh, 5k because you know, it's not, I don't see, I refuse to look at myself as someone who's not on the same team. Exactly. That's it. That's exactly it. It's my perspective on, on this is that I know that addiction and mental health are complicated enough to realize that I'm not going to understand each individual person's relationship to it, nor should I have to, or, you know, nor should that matter. Coming back to access, that's, you know, people ask me about being in the industry and I would say that the most proud title that I could assign to myself is advocate. And actually Gail Rand with Forward Grow, whom you mentioned uh, before, she and I have done a lot of these things together. I really admire her she's advocacy amazing. prowess, and she's not only a really good friend, but has helped guide me through that advocacy and political process. And uh, she and I have talked extensively about the opioid issue and worked with state legislators in Maryland for uh we, we attempted to get them to approve a, a new amendment, which would have basically done what, what Illinois did, but in this case, it would have allowed for same-day temporary registration. So if somebody went to the dentist and had a root canal, they would get a 90-day provisional registration that took immediate effect, which I still think is a good concept, and I plan to. I do, too. I, I think it's a great talk, concept. We talk about it a lot. So. Yeah. This is why I love having great guests on. So I never really thought about if you have, I've always thought about the opioid clause as, well, maybe that'll make physicians feel more comfortable if they see it listed there. I've never really thought about the fact that, well, you know, you're kind of putting them in a box. Exactly. You're, it's counter, it's counterproductive. We thought the same thing initially, but with states like Maryland that already have a catch-all incorporated into the qualifying conditions. Which is what it normally falls under. Exactly. And it. Again, the more restrictive you get with classifications, the, the less impactful it becomes. So we eventually decided with the catch-all already existing, the opioid use disorder uh, qualifying condition would actually be counterproductive. So better to hold off on that. We, <coughs> we're we gonna be right back there. I can promise you I'll be in the state, state house next year pitching the revised version of this. The, the big um, hurdle that we faced 
was the liability and logistics of how to allow a patient of any physician or any medical provider, maybe that's an emergency room or a dentist, regardless of whether they are registered with the state of Maryland as a certifying provider, again, impact, broad. we want broad reach, and the, the liability of those folks, you know, who are tied into whatever professional medical association being willing to say, instead of this proven pharmaceutical, I am suggesting to you that you use medical cannabis, which is not federally approved. And how Chicago Trust Insurance or whatever, like, insurance companies are involved. Exactly. With there, there's, there are pieces to it, complexities in that section of it that I still needed to figure out. But really, I, I won't stop until I see Maryland and other states not just approve this, but legislate it. And, um, and I think that's a key point here, legislating, taking it out of the hands and the opinions of the providers and saying that by law, this is allowed. And, you know, each time I've been in the political setting for this, the counter argument is almost always from, in some way, the addiction lobby, meaning the methadone and suboxone companies who, again, point to extensive research. They're huge political donors oftentimes. And, you know, so that mentality really is is the fight. And so kind of an extension of big farm in a lot of ways. Exactly. And so just to, to wrap this up, what I've learned and what I'm now most focused on is critical is at the federal level. In order for all of us at the table to start seeing day-to-day meaningful change on these topics, the federal law has to change. And not just change specifically, I think the DEA descheduling is the single most important thing that has to happen first. You know, actually, on my way down here today, I have a close relationship with um, Congressman Eric Swalwell from California, and he and I have met and talked extensively about this. And at the federal level, they don't fully understand, the, the legislators don't fully understand how logistically to make this happen. They all want interstate commerce and to open the banking laws and things like that. But without the DEA moving it off of the scheduling charts, nothing else tangible really happens because you can't allocate federal funds. You I mean, can't. That's what, that's what always goes back to right. schedule one, schedule one, schedule one. Exactly. And until we can do that and it's legitimate at the federal level, can be researched, interstate commerce can take place, we're never going to reach that level that we all want of legitimacy, credibility, and we're not going to be able to look at the Suboxone companies and say, actually, we do have this research or this you know, study proving this point, and we need that. When, when Congressman Harris or some of the stronger, more, more um, folks that are, aren't as open-minded to cannabis as a medicine come at me with this straw argument of the research, the research, it's like, well, you've, you've put my hands and my arms behind my back. You blindfolded me in a race right. with Suboxone on research, and I can't. Like right. There's no way I can compete against that, right. nor will I ever. They have the money for the lobby. They have the money for the research. They have all these different things. And until cannabis companies can compete and do the same level, of, all the research that comes out of from cannabis now, for the most part, it's getting better every day. But like 
Yeah, Alabama is the only university they have shitty weed. Like exactly. the, the studies are done were horrible. They were they were set up for failure. They were almost set up so that there could be some evidence and it wouldn't be very appealing exactly. and and shut things down. So um, I'm glad you brought that up and and thank you so much for all of your advocacy at the federal level and the state level. I've seen you down there doing the deeds. Now that we have general managers in place, it's it's my interest to try to be more involved in those discussions and uh, we go down to the MMCC meetings and try to participate when we can but to your point like the federal level until that happens the majority of our our issues for how we run our business don't come from the state of maryland they come from the federal government so it it truly is when we bitch about the the taxes and the banking and all these things it's all all federal if it was a schedule two drug we wouldn't have any of these issues so right what is it how how's it how much better has it gotten in the last you know months year as far as you know at the federal level, people's openness and willingness to look at things like descheduling and just the little intricacies, I guess. I've been in pleasantly surprised, and Congressman Smallwell get, gets a lot of credit for this in bringing in colleagues, both sides of the aisle. We've had amazing discussions with uh, Congressman Gates from Florida and, and other folks like him who are pretty staunch Republicans whom you wouldn't necessarily expect to be so open-minded to, to cannabis. but. Once you break it down, you know, give them our perspective inside the industry on the on the business side and explain, you know, how each legislative option would have an, an impact in reality, it makes it much easier for them to, to understand. For example, uh, the interstate commerce appeal and the economic drivers that can happen with federal legalization are for especially for those conservative states that maybe aren't really sure. Um, how they feel about this. A lot of the business incentives, uh, banking, 100%. Banking's a massive issue for all of us. Uh, But again, research, FDA, DEA, uh, and what we've always come back to is there was a lot of talk last year on the Hill about uh, rescheduling cannabis, so moving it to Schedule 2 or 3. I, you know, firmly oppose that because it just won't have a tangible effect. Sure, it may make it easier for banks to act as a holding tank for cannabis companies in individual markets, but it's not going to achieve what we all want to see, which is the, the credibility. And if we're going to call this stuff medicine, which it is, then we need to treat it like that. And right now, with markets being isolated by themselves, recreating products that are consistent, standardized, at high quality is next to impossible when you're when you're when you have a vertical supply chain in each individual market so yeah can you imagine being like uh procter gamble and you have fifteen thousand widgets right in virginia (laughs) and you got no widgets in maryland and you can't move your widgets from from virginia warehouse to the maryland warehouse i mean it would be exactly and um (laughs) and even like for us like I don't know. Honestly, truthfully, the one of the biggest drivers to the adult use program for us would be the fact that citizens from Delaware and Virginia that are 10 miles away or, or to Delaware and 30 miles for Virginia would be able to participate. Right. Like these are all like they don't participate in our market, not because they don't want to or you know what I mean? It's, yeah. be, it's strictly because we have these very tight state by state rules. Every state's different. It makes it. The reason why you can be a consultant is because 
Maryland's different from Virginia. Virginia's different from Florida. Every single state has got a different program. And I would argue that one of the biggest challenges we face, as I kind of alluded to earlier, as an industry and as creating a singleized voice is we have all these different interests. There's so much segregation in between um, the operators that it's tough to have a unified voice like Big Tobacco or Big Pharma yeah. or Big Alcohol. Those guys... You know, when it comes, when it's their lobby day, no matter what they say yeah. behind the other 364 days, they're locked and loaded with their agenda, they're ready to roll. Yep. We kind of come in. Everybody wants every, something yeah, else, right? Something else, right. and we don't come very unified, and we don't do a great job of that. And and I think that if we're ever going to want to make these larger changes, we're going to have to get better at that, truthfully. So. That's a great point. I agree. Man, unified voice. Thank you so much, thank unified you. voice, for coming down. Appreciate uh, you guys. Give me me. anything you want to plug. Any websites, social media no, pages, no, anything no, like no. that? I'm no, good. I'm good. Thank if you, you. If you're someone politically connected with capital in emerging market, reach out to Mike Cardoza. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank really you. Appreciate Mike. it.